0: Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Today marks our first Vermont Conversation in our new partnership with VT Digger, where the podcast of this show can now be found at vtdigger.org. As local news faces a crisis nationally and here in Vermont, I'm especially gratified to join VT Digger and WDEV to strengthen our coverage of Vermont and the world. Vermont's statewide primary is August 11th. You can vote by mail or in person and check out VT Digger's primary election guide to find out where candidates stand on the issues. Today in the Vermont Conversation, we're joined by the two leading Democratic candidates for governor, former Education Secretary Rebecca Holcomb and Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman, who will join us in the second half hour. We begin with Rebecca Holcomb, who served as Secretary of Education under Governor Peter Shumlin and was reappointed by Governor Phil Scott. She served in the Scott administration for 15 months until resigning in March 2018. Rebecca Holcomb, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation.
1: Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here, and I miss your fuzzy microphone. Yes, uh,
0: like the I fuzzy
2: like microphone this. in the studio is is is, uh, is just starting to get used again, but uh, we all look forward to returning to it.
1: Yeah, um, this remote stuff is hard.
0: Let's begin by talking education. The issue on many Vermonters' minds right now is the reopening of schools. This week, Governor Phil Scott announced that school reopening will be delayed for a week. Also this week, a letter from Harwood Union Superintendent Bridget Neese went viral. Nice wrote, quote, "...under the guise of local control and the need to respond flexibly to the differences in each district, leaders were told by state officials to basically go figure it out. This is a repeat of Act 46 and proficiency-based learning, except with even more at stake. Many superintendents and principals truly cannot sleep at night." Close quote what is your response to Governor Scott's plan for reopening schools and the anxiety expressed by educators and parents?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for the question. And as you may know, I did put out a statement yesterday, and I put out a statement a couple weeks ago as well, suggesting some uh, some considerations. And I, and I think I'm glad that Governor Scott uh, has realized that we aren't ready. Um, you know, I had a superintendent who said to me, it's hard to say he dropped the ball because they never picked it up in the first place. And I think the reality is we know uh, kids are struggling. Um, we know that uh, kids learn best when they are in a structured environment and have some some ability to have contact with teachers. But we also know we're in the middle of a pandemic, and there's enough going on to make people um, concerned. And we have an obligation to do everything we can to make sure that we're weighing all the available evidence and opening in a way that's safe for kids. But first of all, it puts their emotional and health well-being first, And then also make sure that part of this is learning. And, um, you know, I think... What happened is the state issued a set of guidance, then it issued a little nut- another bit of guidance a little bit later because it realized the first guidance didn't work, but people had already begun to plan, and so people feel very, very disoriented right now, and they're anxious about opening up and feeling like we don't have what we need in place to do it. And of course, you remember the Scott administration's first solution was to force every single school district to re-vote on its budget in the middle of a pandemic, which is effectively saying cut your budget. Even as you try to open up. Um, so I think that there's a lot here that makes people feel anxious. And, and I guess the first and foremost, the thing I would say is we need to have, and we had three months to do this, a methodical, thoughtful, opening to schools that looks across all the roles that schools play from childcare because that is a real concern for many parents, but also to learning and to social and emotional well-being as well. And that's what people are saying just hasn't happened. And, uh, you know, when you read the guidance, um, you know, people are worried. They want to know that they're doing what's right. They've seen the research coming out of other countries and places like Texas on transmission when people open up. And uh, we all know that once COVID is in a community, um, it's really in our schools as well. Schools can't keep COVID out. Communities have to keep COVID out. And, um, you you know, we have a limited amount of exposure before we're, we're all at risk. And so I think what people are saying is just as we know we have to mask up to open up, we also need to be thinking carefully about how we organize and plan in a coordinated way to make sure we can open up. And I think
0: So you you you've, you've, you've yeah. talked about being careful and being cautious, mm-hmm. but what would you mm-hmm. do differently as governor at this moment to answer people's concerns and anxieties about school reopening?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I I think you can look I mean we're we're pretty far in and I don't think I would have been this far in and been in this position and you can certainly look to other states I mean New Jersey just put out some very comprehensive uh, guidance that that should structure and inform school opening statewide I, I think you know ironically one of the funny things that came out of this decision to push off the school opening to September 8th is for the first time we may actually have the same starting date for every school district in the state that doesn't happen so one of the first things we need to think about is how we coordinate on scheduling, just at the most pragmatic level. I've had you know parents say to me, don't teachers understand that we have kids and we can't work if we have kids at home? Here's the reality. Teachers are parents, too, and they have trouble teaching if they have young children at home, We have the oldest teaching force in the nation, or one of the oldest, and we also have a very high proportion of our our educators are female, and females tend to have a disproportionate amount of caretaking responsibilities outside school. So we are in a situation where if school schedules are not coordinated, a teacher could live in one district where her children go to school, teach in a different district, and maybe have childcare in a third district. And so if these schedules aren't coordinated, if we're planning to open up in person, it may be that we have an acute challenge around getting people to work. Another issue is that if many of our teachers meet basically the CDC guidelines for being, um, you know, at risk, um, we may need to think about who can be in person and who can't. And if we aren't really accounting for workforce issues, to the extent that we plan to open in person, if we haven't made sure that we have a plan for how to have bodies in the building in a coordinated way to support that, it doesn't really matter what the plan says because we won't have people in place to do that work. So, just at the most basic level, there needs to be some statewide methodical coordination around um, around how to make this happen. You know, and I and I you know that's that's and I put out a series of recommendations. I encourage other people to look at them as well. You know, I think the real acute concern I'm hearing is around the youngest children and how we support them. There is research that suggests um, that in child cares in Texas, for example, of all the cases that were tracked back to child cares, about 70% were in adults, not in students. So we need to understand that coming back isn't just about the kids. It's about keeping educators healthy so that they can be in the classroom. And, uh, you know, just working through all these issues. And the other question I keep hearing from schools and superintendents is um, if we are opening, what's the plan for um, systematic testing and tracing and tracking? You know, I think the Department of Health is fantastic. I know those folks are incredibly professional and they're working very, very hard and have provided really solid uh, public health advice. You know, they also have about 340 fewer people than they did in 2008 so the question is, if we open up in every community in the state and we have a surge, what's the plan? I mean, how do we decide uh, when it's time to close? Uh, do they have enough capacity? Do they even have enough bodies in the Department of Health um, to, to do testing and tracing in different parts of the state at the same time? It's probably, you know, maybe they have a plan, but it hasn't been communicated. And I think that's some of the anxiety people feel.
0: What? Let's broaden the question and just get, what is your assessment of Governor Scott's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: I I think we all should be grateful to, to Governor Scott and to many people for shutting the state down. And you'll remember when we first closed up, it was in March, and kids were coming back from spring break in many communities, and college students were also coming back. They were being sent home from all over the country as colleges closed uh, due to COVID-19. In other states, it really was the time to shut down because we needed to to shut down and get ahead of the virus before it had to, a chance to spread in our communities. And I thank Governor Scott for doing that, and it was the right thing to do. And it certainly um, protected our hospitals and our healthcare system, um, and prevented overload. and and so I'm, I, I think we all need to give credit for that. That's very important. I think there are other issues where, um, you know, COVID-19 has exposed uh, some of the weaknesses in Vermont. They were here before. We just saw them a little bit more obviously during COVID-19. So, for example, I know the administration spent about ten million dollars on a new unemployment insurance system uh, prior to COVID-19, and ended up giving up on that project. Um, which meant that as we moved into trying to figure out how to help all the people who were displaced or put out of work by the shutdown, um, we we really struggled to get unemployment insurance to them in a timely way. Uh, which is why the governor went and hand mailed uh, checks you know, about six or eight weeks in. The reality is there are other ways to skin that cat. And I think of Governor Gina Raimundo in Rhode Island, who in 10 days realized that she had a health insurance problem, health unemployment insurance problem and worked to put together a cloud based solution that processed 75,000 people on its first day in operation. So, you know, part of it is making sure that we have good systems in place so that we can actually show up and keep people safe and support them when something terrible happens, as has happened right now during COVID-19. So I I think we all need to be thinking hard about how do we just make sure government is strong and able to work well so that when we're confronted with a crisis, we can actually respond in a timely way so parents can feed their kids and people cannot worry about whether they're going to lose their home. And those are the kinds of things we need to focus on. Let's turn
0: to the campaign you have attacked Lieutenant Governor Zuckerman in debates and in your TV ads on his earlier positions on vaccines. He insists that you have mischaracterized his position. Why do you believe this issue is important to vermonters?
1: Um, I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna just point out um, I asked him about his position and um, you have characterized it as an attack. I actually think we need to learn how to ask questions and openly discuss issues that are disagreements without characterizing it as an attack. Incidentally, I noticed that Governor Scott did almost the exact thing and didn't get that characterization. So I, I just think we really need to be able to talk about substantive differences of opinion in ways that are, are able help voters and, and Vermonters understand what the issues are. You know, And I think the record is very clear. People can read it. There was a, an article in Seven Days that, that, that documented it. This is an important issue. Issue to me because I have worked in schools with um, children who are immunocompromised who literally cannot come to school if they can't be reasonably sure that their classmates have had vaccines against basic childhood illnesses like measles so that they're not going to be at risk or exposed in that school context. It's just like masks. Mask wearing keeps our neighbors safe. In the same way, getting a measles shot. Keep some child who can't get that shot safe because it keeps it from spreading. And vaccines work. You know, I grew up in Afghanistan for years, and hundreds of people died there every year from measles. We don't usually talk about that in Vermont. We don't talk about polio anymore, precisely because these vaccines do keep people safe. But if people don't get them, we're at risk. And why it matters now is that if we are disputing the science behind um uh, you know, the the value of basic immunizations and not having research-based peer-reviewed conversations about what appropriate public health interventions are, what we're doing is calling into question very well-established public health interventions with very long track records of success of saving lives in this country, just like wearing a seatbelt or wearing a bike helmet saves lives. And... Um, And what that does is it makes people afraid to take advantage of something that could save a life of somebody. And so I just, I feel very strongly that we have to have evidence-based conversations based on good science, peer-reviewed literature, to to make sure we're we're, uh, acting in ways that keep people safe. And in the context of COVID-19, where what we really need to do is be able to evaluate every um, proposal, every public health recommendation, whether it's mask wearing or hopefully someday a, a viable vaccine that's safe and will, will keep us safe and allow us to come out of the, the current moment. It needs to be done through a, a, a careful, meticulous review of the evidence and not based on, on fears that really aren't substantiated by science
0: let's talk about um the black lives matter movement has brought racial justice issues into the center of national attention will you make a commitment now to include people of color in your cabinet and what else will you do
1: um you know this is something i feel very very strongly about um and and i you know i don't think there's an american tradition stronger and longer than black people fighting for their rights. Uh, Certainly it predated our our establishment as a nation. Um, So I I think, um, you know, first of all, yes, absolutely. I think our state needs to look like the people it represents. And I think that that's got to be a strong commitment. Um, And I don't think that's enough. I think we need to look across Every sector of state government, and just look at what we see in terms of data, because everybody comes into this world full of promise. And in places where we see real disproportionality, whether it's discipline, the criminal justice system, our healthcare system, our you know you name it, um, then we have to ask, what is it that created a barrier so some people couldn't? Access the opportunities that we're funding through our state tax dollars. I'll give you one example that's been on my mind a lot since we're talking about affordable housing and renting and owning a lot these days. If you look at home ownership and renters in Vermont, about seventy percent of white households own their homes, and only about 20, 22% of black households own their homes. This is because we have very well documented years and years of discrimination in housing markets, but also in mortgage markets that really prevented black families from buying homes. When you can't buy a home, you can't begin to build wealth and develop assets, and that leaves black families even more vulnerable in the face of an economic crisis like the one we have now. And here's why it matters. If we have policy that on its face looks race neutral, that provides support only to homeowners, it will disadvantage and exacerbate any inequality we have in opportunity between black families and white families in the state of Vermont. So we just need to be paying attention and making sure it's not just that we're putting out good policies, but that we're being attentive to how those same policies might play out differently across different communities that have been marginalized or cut out of opportunity in the state of Vermont. And that's just one example. And the other, the way we do this is we involve people from marginalized communities in conversations about what help should look like. And we saw this when um, the state legislature, you know, we we had a proposal to put out aid to um, to business owners and the PPE went disproportionately to white uh, and um, male businesses. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have made sure everybody's okay. But when the legislature then put out the aid and reserved some for woman-owned businesses and black-owned businesses, I think what we saw was that the people distributing the aid maybe didn't have the relationships or the networks in communities of color to find the, the black-owned businesses who might benefit. So we need to just include communities in um, any policy development to, to understand how the help that we think we're providing is or isn't helpful.
0: I wonder if you could give us a sense of how you govern and tell us uh, a mistake that you've made in your political life and what you've learned from it, perhaps even during this campaign.
1: I think, um, well, I'll tell you a mistake, and it actually shaped uh, some of the recommendations I put out recently, and you may have seen I put out some um, recommendations on ethics and government and transparency. And when I was at the State Agency of Education, I had standing written recusals so that if any business came before the Agency of Education that involved um, someone who was a, I was a friend or associate of mine or anything related to my own home school district, it didn't come to me. And that's because I felt very strongly that people in the field needed to know that they were being treated fairly. And we couldn't even have the appearance that I might favor my own district. So I never saw those. I had standing a uh, delegation of authority to other people to handle those incidents. But there was one incident that I think I, I um, had concerns around, and that was our hazing, harassment, and bullying data. And my concern was twofold. One, I'm very concerned in Vermont when we report data from very small schools um, because, you know, if you identify, um, uh, you know, you know, if you've got a community where there's only – one child of color, for example, and you report an incident or a 100% increase, everybody knows who it is. They know it's Freddie because our schools are so small. They know who's in trouble when it comes to discipline in schools because they're very small. And so I have a real tension with um, protecting children, letting them be children, letting them make mistakes and learn, and letting them improve and and get better, and making sure that um, when people are young, they have an opportunity to get a second chance and not be stigmatized by public data. And that's why we work so hard to suppress data. And there was a request from, um, from um, actually, I think it was uh, Lola uh, Dufford who was at uh, the Rutland, time, uh, Rutland um, Herald at the time uh, for some of the data. And I knew it would take hours and hours and hours and hours to create it, and we'd have to suppress almost all the data just to protect student confidentiality. And we turned her down and she ended up suing and we ended up creating the blank template for her. But the takeaway for me was that we need to increase and enhance transparency in government because when we don't provide it, it actually creates a story or a concern where there might not even be cause for one. And as a result of that, we did change some of our data policies um, to try to create and store data and reports in ways that could be easier to produce and could be put up on our website immediately, so that we could make it easier for people to access data without having to do um, that kind of public records request. So that was a powerful lesson for me, um, and it's, it's you know it's, if you look at the recommendations I put out, it's one I'll try to to work on as a as governor to make sure that when we report data, we're to the extent we can um, putting it together proactively in ways that are easier to share with the public.
0: If you are elected governor, you will be just the second woman to serve as governor of the state of Vermont. How important, or how how important is that to you? How important do you think that should be to voters?
1: You know, I, I got to say, Dan, I think I'm I think I'm the best candidate in the race because I'm the only candidate who has worked in uh, public institutions from the community level all the way up to the state level. I took over a state agency that had experienced almost a 40% cut in in real dollars in uh, funding and you know, with that capacity, we lost a lot of staff. When I took over the agency of education, it was overworked, underfunded, and very demoralized. And we worked very, very hard to rethink operations, to support our staff, to streamline our work, to make sure that we could deliver. And I, I feel very proud of how we transformed that agency. Were we perfect? Absolutely not. But I know we punched above our weight. And I think, uh, if you talk to people in the legislature who work with us, they would say the same thing. And that's what it's going to take. I mean, we're looking at a very, very tough couple of years and Vermonters are not going to put into office somebody who doesn't have strong administrative chops, who can lead from day one, who's worked across state government, has figured out how to serve the goal of equity by making every dollar meet multiple goals and work hard for the state of Vermont. And that's what I'll do. And that's what we're going to need more than ever in the coming year, which is going to be a tough year.
0: Do you think it's important to have women in leadership, especially at the, at the top?
1: Absolutely. I think it changes um, the kinds of issues that people understand are really important. And I think in hindsight 2020, even Governor Scott has finally seen why paid leave was such an important issue. The people who are on our front lines taking care of people are people who don't have paid leave in Vermont. So the very people we count on to take care of us we are not helping take care of them. And if we had acted on that, we would be in much better shape early on in COVID-19 absolutely it affects the kinds of issues that people care about. Because if we can't make sure that we have good childcare so people can feel safe and know their kids are loved when they go to work, they can't go to work. And we're a state that before COVID, at least, and certainly we're in an unusual moment now, we know we need the bright uh, brains and the good hands of every single Vermonter who can go to work and help create, create prosperity. So I think having a more diverse uh, set of leadership is, um, is really important. I also think it's really important to show young women in Vermont that their voices matter. You know, in, early in our campaign, we had a running uh, joke in, internally where we would screenshot the news every day and count the woman. And we could go for days on end without seeing a woman in leadership. And I think it's really important, just as it's important for young children of color in Vermont and young people in rural communities to see people from their own communities lead. We need to show Vermont what Vermont is and what the uh, and how that reflected in our leadership in ways that help people see opportunity and potential. And so absolutely, I think it's important to have diverse leadership. It brings different voices to the table. It brings a different set of experiences that can inform different kinds of policy solutions. And frankly, because of the, the nature of um, experience of women in Vermont, I think women have had to work really hard together to get things done. Um, in ways that perhaps uh, some other individuals haven't. And I think that's going to be the kind of skill we got to lean on in the next couple of years.
0: Finally, uh, Rebecca Holcomb, this pandemic primary has been a campaign like no other. So just give us a glimpse uh, from the field, or perhaps from your basement, I'm not sure where you've been waging this, what it's been like, what have been the challenges and the opportunities?
1: Well, I, I have to I have to just say, I didn't, I'm, so grateful to the Vermonters who've taken the time to speak with me, first in their homes, you know, in their, um, you know, in their communities across the state. You know, I got into this race early because I knew as a first-time candidate, I'm not a lifelong politician. I haven't been around for 24 years saying the same things. I'm going into this because I know we need change. I know we have serious problems that need serious solutions. And I knew I had to get out early to begin to connect with Vermonters and hear what was on their minds. And that process is such a privilege, and it is also so inspiring. We have everything it takes to turn the corner in this state and to come out stronger. We just need a governor who's willing to bring these folks to the table and get the job done. And that's what I'm excited about doing. The beauty of being a first-time candidate is I don't have any uh, campaign to compare this to, so I'm just campaigning. And when we couldn't meet in person, we just went virtual. Uh, We've been on the phones. We've been using Zoom calls. Um, We're reaching people whatever way we can, and uh, I can't, I can't bemoan what we didn't have because I never had it in the first place. And I just feel so grateful to the Vermonters who shared their stories, who volunteered time behind the scenes to help me think through issues and uh, really look forward to being the change that Vermont needs right now.
0: Okay. Well, Rebecca Holcomb, I want to thank you for joining us uh, this week on the Vermont Conversation and best of luck in your campaign.
1: Thanks so much, David. I appreciate your time. Take care.
0: Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman is a veteran of state politics in Vermont. In 1996, at the age of 25, he was elected to the Vermont House of Representatives. In 2012, he was elected to the Vermont State Senate, and he was elected Lieutenant Governor in 2016. Nearly a quarter century after he was first entered the State House, David Zuckerman is seeking Vermont's highest office. Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation.
2: Well, thank you. It's really good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Your political mentor, Bernie Sanders, who endorsed you this week, has often talked about uh, the need for a political revolution. Do you believe that Vermont needs a political revolution? And if so, what would it look like?
2: Well, I think we need political vision for sure. Uh, We've had a governor that's handled the realms well, but or the rains well but hasn't really been building for the future the way we need to particularly in our rural economy uh working class people continue to struggle uh he vetoed the minimum wage vetoed paid family leave and these are bills that if they had been implemented would have put working vermonters in a much better position to weather this this COVID storm you know we have uh essential workers uh, they're now deemed on the front lines in our stores many of whom are getting minimum wage and struggling to pay their bills. And they should not be at such an economic disadvantage. We need vision around our climate and really need to invest our resources in our future climate economy of broadband uh, expansion into rural areas, which again, had we been making a greater investment in that for the last four years with more vision and leadership, then far more of our youth would have had opportunities to learn these last few months when schools are closed. And we've heard... Almost a third of our students had either no broadband or such poor broadband that they and their their uh, brothers and sisters couldn't all learn at the same time, even in some cases not even having enough devices to do so. So whether you want to call it a revolution or you just want to call it a vision for the future, we do need that. And uh, I'm ready to bring that to the to the governor's office.
0: Why do you shy away from the revolution? Uh, Mont characterization uh, because it, it is so central to Bernie's di- discourse on what needs to happen in politics.
2: Sure, I don't I don't necessarily mean to shy away from it. What we do need is a revolution of participation, a revolution of engagement, a revolution of everyday people participating and being welcomed into the process so that their voices are heard louder and at least of equal volume, if not louder than the folks that are able to pay for representation in the form of lobbyists and larger donations to campaigns. And you really look at how the concentration of wealth, especially since the Reagan years, has has just accumulated in in the hands of the few. That's because of policy decisions that are made. And we do need a revolution not just to uh, have sort of a liberal way of thinking, but to really take on the neoliberal way of thinking, which is we can do social good But we can't tax the wealthy anymore because they might leave well this concentration of wealth is part of what's led to the social breakdown of what we have people are really really struggling to pay their bills to afford to live here or anywhere for that matter to uh, keep a roof over their their heads uh, to eat healthy food to get health care and this has been a growing problem for decades, and we need a, a a social revolution of political engagement to change that.
0: If you are elected governor, you will be facing, Vermont will be facing, a three to $400 million hole in its budget due to the economic repercussions of COVID-19. How would you deal with that?
2: Well, there's a couple things. Thankfully, uh, the last few years have been more robust economically and the state has over $200 million in rainy day reserves. They are meant specifically for this kind of situation where the bottom drops out of the revenues of the state because the economy is struggling. We need to jumpstart the economy, not do an austerity budget situation. So we need to utilize those funds. We also need to look at part of that deficit is in education revenues. And we could look at potentially bonding for uh, maybe a four or really a 10-year bond to fund and spread out the needs of our schools over a longer period of time so that people don't get hit extremely hard by a one-year spike in uh, the needs of our schools for education funding. Because again, we can't be cutting our schools and cutting teachers when we already have a number of teachers that are going to have a hard time being at school all the time, either because they've got their own kids in a different school system, but maybe having their kids having to be learning at home because of what that school system is doing. So we can't be cutting our education system in the midst of this pandemic when actually everybody is relying on the opportunity for having their kids, hopefully, in a safe either childcare or educational setting. I would also look to the federal government. Frankly, uh, our president and Mitch McConnell have been really dropping the ball on the need to help states with the economic situation they're facing, uh, the really um, hardline position they're taking, the fact that Mitch McConnell said, well, states will just have to go bankrupt. You know, I'm looking to our own governor and saying, OK, you do run with a Republican label. Now's the time to put it to use. Why don't you organize with other, quote, reasonable and rational Republicans and say, OK, Republican Party, it's time to step up. And do what we need to make sure our whole nation's economy doesn't collapse via state collapse. Our governor's done a a very commendable job with COVID-19 here at the state level. But if he's going to keep carrying the Republican label, he might as well put it to use and go to Washington, you know, virtually if he has to and say, Mitch McConnell, President Trump, it's time to fund our states. And it's time to fund our unemployed workers. Stop playing around. Our economy is too fragile. Our public health is too fragile stop playing politics, do something about it. But he won't step up and push them hard, because that's going to jeopardize uh, his Republican Governor's Association support. And he's walking a fine line, and he has to do that.
0: What would you do differently handling the COVID-19 crisis here in Vermont than Governor Scott?
2: Well, I think some of the things he's done in the past, most of which he's done very well. So I'm going to commend him, as I think most Vermonters would. We are very fortunate in Vermont, both in terms of the rapid actions that he took, but also uh, as Vermonters, we all took rapid action and the vast majority of Vermonters have been very careful about spacing and distancing, wearing masks and doing the things we needed to do. So it's a combination of good leadership by the governor and really good citizenship on the people of Vermont. Early on with the unemployment situation, uh, I would have done things very differently. I would have opened up uh, far more phone lines much more quickly. It's my understanding the speaker and the pro tem had meetings with the governor in February suggesting that he do that. And he really took too long. And I heard from calls all over the state of really desperate people who couldn't get through to unemployment. So that's a really big one, because that's fundamental uh, economic justice for people that uh, were doing the right thing and staying home. With respect to education right now, I think far more incorporation of teachers' voices just yesterday, he really, um, frankly, insulted teachers uh, with some of his remarks at his press conference uh, in regard to their concerns about opening schools safely, opening schools uh, properly for our kids, opening schools in a way that teachers with kids would be able to teach while also juggling their own family lives. Uh, so those are some things that I would do differently is really have brought a lot more people into the conversation with their creative and strong ideas. Uh, rather than being sort of a circle the wagons insular governor, that isn't really bringing in a lot of voices.
0: How did he insult teachers?
2: Well, he he really called out that they were you know whiny and complaining about you know what was going on with uh, the school reopening, and you know teachers are expressing legitimate concerns, and I think. Uh, you know, I've gotten emails from some teachers that said, you know, that it was insulting to them. So I'm only speaking from what I've heard from teachers as well as heard from the reaction uh, by by many teachers.
0: Hmm. What is your feeling about how school reopening should be approached? And would you do it any differently than uh, the governor has outlined?
2: Well, you know, I'm glad that he has um, finally put uh, a set date in place. That could have been done quite a while ago. Um, I think we have to bring more stakeholders to the table. We do need better guidance. Some of these, we do want to give local control. And I, I respect that he's been leaning in that direction. On the other hand, because town boundaries do not uh, stop people from, they might work in one town and live in another Teachers cross town boundaries. There are some statewide standards that need to be in place. I also would have liked to have seen him put more resources earlier into the supplies that schools really need and to say, okay, if we're going to open up schools in the fall, we need to start thinking from day one when, you know, we could have started this in May, but making more of the um, fixtures and faucets hands free could have been doing a lot more to look at what are the custodial needs going to need to be if we're going to have kids in place in the fall, because we're going to need to be cleaning the schools far more, looking at uh, the supplies around masks and sanitizers and thermometers, and really start doing a much more centralized purchasing of those so that we could get better prices for our schools and educators, as well as make sure we could have those supplies, because each town is you know going out there, doing it on their own, competing with the whole globe to get these basic needs, and much bigger states have much more clout, much bigger school systems have much more clout. So there could have been far more work done and should still be more work done to uh, help the local communities with some of these plans.
0: Hmm. Uh, If you're just tuning in, um, my guest this half hour is Lieutenant Governor and current Democratic gubernatorial candidate David Zuckerman. Uh, As Lieutenant Governor, you have expressed frustration and disappointment with Governor Phil Scott that he has excluded you from any decision-making or consultation. Uh, You've described just having one 30-minute face-to-face meeting with him in the uh, over three years that you've now served as Lieutenant Governor. So let's turn the tables. If you are elected Governor and Republican Meg Hansen, an outspoken supporter of President Trump, is elected Lieutenant Governor, Will you include her in your cabinet?
2: Well, certainly include her in the cabinet uh, because as lieutenant governor, one of the things you have to be prepared to do is take over and be governor if something happens to make the governor unable to do their job. And being in the cabinet, the organization of cabinet meetings should really be around how government services are being applied for the citizens of the state and the questions that are coming up at different levels of governance in terms of how to apply the law or what's happening with this person in this town around human services and why are they or are they not getting the supports they need. Those are things that anybody who is lieutenant governor should be hearing and learning about so that if they're put in a position where they have to be making the decisions, they could be hearing and learning about how to do that so that the state as a whole can have good leadership regardless of political perspectives, but at least experienced leadership. If something were to happen to me as governor, I would want that next person to be ready to do, do the job. The second thing I would do beyond that is I would sit down with Meg or Scott Milne or whomever. Maybe it's Tim Ash, Molly Gray, Brenda. We don't know who it's going to be, Debbie Ingram. But we have to sit down and say, okay, where do we have areas of agreement? And therefore, how can we use those areas of agreement for the best for the people of Vermont? And I've had these kinds of conversations when I was on the Young Farmers and Ranchers Committee of the American Farm Bureau Federation, and I was in these meetings with 16 farmers from across the country, and my 10-acre organic vegetable farm was by far the smallest. Most of these other folks were much larger farms, and yet we found areas to talk about and areas of agreement about what it's like to run a business. How do you make a business profitable? How do you make sure you treat the land right and treat your workers right? even with different broader political ideologies. And that's what you've got to do is find ways to find common ground first and then work together on those. And then when you can have your disagreements, they'll be much more respectful uh, because you'll have developed a relationship. And that's how I worked in the Senate and in the House. You know, in the House, we passed medical cannabis when I was a, a minority member of the House during the uh, years when Walt Fried was the speaker. And we passed it in order to... Um, through a Republican House, through a Democratic Senate, and through a Republican governor. As a progressive, I would say that shows I was able to work with people across all, all sides. Same with the GMO legislation, same with Lyme legislation, because what people eat and people's health, those are all things that matter to everybody, regardless of their political ideology. So if you can show you can work with people, I think you can be a much more effective governor.
0: Well, you've kind of described a situation where <clears throat> the lieutenant governor, if it were a Republican, uh, would sort of just be sitting in the room, but not necessarily having their views uh, part of the discussion in your cabinet. Is that really a role that uh, you would want? And, and frankly, you know, from somebody who was sharply opposed to your point of view, like a Trump supporter, would they really have any influence in your administration?
2: Well, there's there's two aspects of what you're asking here. One is influence, and I think the people of the state of Vermont, if they choose to put me into the office of governor, they would be choosing to put me and the ideas and the agenda that I've put forward at the helm of the state. And so those are the issues and ideas that we would be promoting and moving forward. When it comes to the nuts and bolts of running state government – there are people of all kinds of different political persuasions who can be good managers, who can be good uh, administrators and who can offer ideas about how we can, we can do the job of governing better than we are now. So there are places for people with different views to be able to give input with respect to aspects of running state government. It would be up to whoever that person is as Lieutenant governor. If they happen to have such a stark difference of opinion, if they ultimately feel that they uh, couldn't be in the room because they would just be too frustrated by the direction we were going, that would be the choice of the lieutenant governor to do that. Uh, but I would certainly give that opportunity for whoever's lieutenant governor to participate in the cabinet meetings. And if they don't want to participate in the cabinet meetings, I would still hold meetings with them to find out what are the places and areas where we could work together, what issues of our constituents' concerns could we work to address together, and so forth. We, ha- we in Vermont have such a great tradition of people talking to each other despite our differences. And I would want to rekindle that tradition in the role of governor and lieutenant governor if the lieutenant governor is not of the same broad political ideology as my own.
0: Okay. A recent AP poll shows that half of Americans are either reluctant or unwilling to get a vaccine for COVID-19 if one is developed before the end of the year. In 2015, you opposed repealing the state's philosophical exemption to vaccines, and Rebecca Holcomb, your opponent, uh, has made a big issue of this. Do you believe that you've contributed to vaccine skepticism in Vermont?
2: No, I don't. I spoke both about uh, some of the concerns I had at the time, but I've also spoken quite clearly about the importance of getting vaccines uh, I voted for the bill to remove that philosophical exemption, which is the part of the story that has not been told by my opponent, as uh, as she has tried to paint a one-sided story of the situation. Uh, and so I did vote for the bill to remove the philosophical exemption. I have a strong scientific background, both in my family and in my own academics. I was a chemistry minor. Uh, my father was a doctor. My mother was a nurse and had a PhD in biochemistry. We talked about science all the time in my household. And what we have to be talking about is the importance of getting vaccines, those of us that are able to get them, obviously folks with leukemia and lupus and some other autoimmune illnesses, it is imperative that those of us that are able to get them because we aren't genetically uh, predisposed to a problem from them, Do get them so we hold major contagious diseases at bay and we protect those other individuals. Now, with respect to the COVID vaccine, first of all, we have to listen to the scientists and the medical experts, just as we do with the flu vaccine, with respect to who should get it. How long does it last? There's still a lot of unknowns. Will it be a, a vaccine that lasts seasonally? Will we have enough doses for everybody? Should we make sure those who are most vulnerable get it first to make sure they are protected when? when, uh, you know, such a disease um, strikes. So we have to listen to the medical experts. And and as a political leader, we uh, reiterate those political experts with respect to the importance of us getting vaccines, uh, depending on who they say should get them.
0: You have made a centerpiece of your political life, the issue of health care for all in some fashion, whether it's Medicare for all, single payer, Um, As you well know, you had a front seat to uh, what happened when Governor Shumlin uh, tried to secure single payer in Vermont, and that may have brought his political career to an early end. What would you do differently to expand health care for all in Vermont?
2: Well, let's remember in the end, uh, he pulled the plug on that because he was uh, too afraid to do the hard step of saying we all have to pay in in order for all of us to have a better health care system that we can then start to adjust to make sure it's also more cost effective. And that was very frustrating for those of us that were supporting a universal health care system. And also for those in central Vermont, you know, I just want to um, unfortunately deliver some news who another very strong advocate for universal health care and a strong advocate and fighter, uh, Marge Powers, unfortunately, just passed away recently. And I just want to express my condolences to her and her family. Um, just As one of the leading fighters for universal health care, she really was a champion. Uh, So I'm I'm the bearer of bad news, but I want to just express those condolences because the issue of universal health care is really important to many, many people. And we're learning with COVID-19 that as soon as there's a contagious disease, Everybody's all in on universal health care. Let's pay for everybody to get tested. Let's pay for the health care. Let's get them care uh, as quickly as possible so that it doesn't spread to other people. And so I think there's a new window of opportunity here as people recognize, A, whether they've lost their health care because they don't have a job because of COVID-19, or B, whether it's the importance of a universal health care system so that we are all taking care of each other in these major epidemics. Uh, I think there's a new opportunity for universal health care to be discussed. I met with a couple of business leaders earlier this year who said they and another few businesses were teaming up to create a free clinic for primary care for all of their employees. And they're looking at seeing a return on investment. In other words, they're going to start saving money within just two or three years by having their employees go in immediately to these free clinics when they don't feel well with something in order to prevent their illness from getting worse and costing more money. They also gave an example of one company in central Vermont that saw a return on investment of less than a year by offering free primary care. Now, obviously, free, uh, the, the Republican and conservative listening listeners are saying there's nothing free. That's right. But the business was saying they would spend money to create that opportunity for their employees, and their business would save money by lowering their business health care premiums. If we can take that business model and apply it to all of us and create a more efficient healthcare system with, yes, free access to primary health care through everybody paying in, we would actually reduce our health system costs and get better health outcomes.
0: So you would plan as governor to introduce a free universal primary care uh, bill?
2: We would work with advocates, doctors patients, care providers, like many of the federally qualified health care providers already, the FQHCs, it may be a bill that simply expands those so that we can also leverage more federal dollars. Uh, Rather than reinventing the wheel, I would work with businesses and the FQHCs to see the best way to introduce such an idea.
0: So um, you know, Lieutenant Governor Zuckerman, you are facing steep odds that uh, uh, Governor Scott is among the more popular Governors in the country. How, what, what is your strategy for winning the general election?
2: Well, I think uh, it's clear that it's an uphill race. We all knew that from the get-go. On the other hand, it's certainly a winnable race. The governor, uh, unlike two years ago, has now vetoed minimum wage, paid family leave, medical monitoring for people who were uh, potentially poisoned and potentially toxically by chemical companies that knew they had toxins that they were releasing into the environment. Uh, that's affected Bennington County in a huge way, as we all know, with PFOA and PFAS. Uh, and those bills, I think, show a stark difference between someone who's thinking about everyday Vermonters and the struggles they're facing relative to those that are getting by reasonably well. And I'm going to go out there and give people an opportunity to decide, do they want a governor who's got a vision for Vermont? That works to tackle the climate crisis while creating jobs, really concentrating the opportunity for economic development in our rural uh, towns and villages with affordable housing and broadband, and really having a vision to rebuild Vermont's economy out of this crisis. We need to be very respectful and thankful to the governor for what he's done to this point, but he has not been a visionary governor, and to build out of the COVID crisis – and to build a future Vermont that doesn't have the haves and the have-nots that we had going into this crisis, we need a governor with more vision. I'm going to be very respectful of the governor, but I will also point out our differences and point out what people will have with the Zuckerman administration to build the economy for all Vermonters.
0: Okay, Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation.
2: Uh, it's been a great opportunity to chat. Thank you, and I'm always uh, happy to come on anytime.
0: Okay, uh, that does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all shows by going to vtdigger.org, where the podcast is. And you can check out Vermont Digger's primary election guide uh, at that website as well. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.